18, if which the poor man must have been overwhelmed during the past two months, 1, my lord, in the present critical state of your lordship's situation, it behoves every lover of his country and her friends, to endeavor to assuage, as much as possible, the awkward predicament in which your lordship and colleagues will soon be thrown, my dining rooms in Broad Street, St. Giles's, have long been held in high estimation by my customers, for and I can offer you an excellent basin of leg of beef soup, with bread and potatoes, for threepence, imitated by all, equaled by none, and be, please observe the address Broad Street, St. Giles's, to, a widow lady, superintendent of a boarding house, in an airy and cheerful part of Cavendish Town, will be happy to receive Lord Melbourne as an inmate, when an ungrateful nation shall have induced his retirement from office. Her establishment is chiefly composed of single ladies, addicted to backgammon, birds, and Bible meetings, who would, nevertheless, feel delighted in the society of a man of Lord Melbourne's acknowledged gallantry. The dinner table is particularly well furnished, and a rubber is generally got up every evening, at which Lord M. could play long penny points if he wished it. Address S.M. Post Office, Cavendish Town, 3, Gross Jean, Restaurateur, Castle Street. Leicester Square, Alhanar de Premier Milord Melbourne Creel Southeast Truvera Beam Survey is on a tablet ailment. Ilpute Commander UN Bon Potage and Chu, Trois Platz, Avec Pain a Discretion, and in Pint de Demi et Demi, Infam, Ilpura Parfait Ailment of War Southeast Sex Soufflés pour UN Shilling, La Societe Established Ters Comilfo, et on Northeast Don Renaud Garçon, French Idiom, he will be well able to blow his bags out. Punch with the assistance of his friend in the show the foreign gentleman, for, rose-colored paper, scented, at first supposed to be from a lady of the bedchamber, but contradicted by the sequel, flattering deceiver, and man of many loves, my fond heart still clings to your cherished memory, why have I listened to the honeyed silver of your seducing accents, your adored image haunts me night and day, how's the treasury, can you still spare me ten shillings, yours, Amanda, five, John M.A.R.V. 80 respectfully begs to offer to the notice of Lord Melbourne his bachelor's dispatch, or portable kitchen, it will roast, bake, boil, stew, steam, melt butter, toast bread, and diffuse a genial warmth at one and the same time, for the outlay of one halfpenny, it is peculiarly sweet for lamb, in any form, which requires delicate dressing, and is admirably adapted for concocting mint sauce, which delightful adjunct Lord Melbourne made. Ere long, find some little difficulty in procuring. High Holborn, 6. May it bless my lord, I have just time to write and let you know what a sad plight we are in, on account of your lordship's invitation to Queen Victory and Prince all but to come and pick a bit with you, because there is nothing for them when they comes, and the pitching range is chucked up with the suit as has fallen down the last four years, and no poultry but to old cocks, which is too tough to be agreeable, but, perhaps, we can get some cold meat from the in what has been left at the farmer's market dinner, and may I ask you my lord without fear of your on the receipt of this to send down some ham and beef to me two pound will be enough for a quarter kit off pickled salmon, if you can get it, and I wish you may, and some German silver spoons, to compliment Prince all but with, and, perhaps, as he and his missus knows they've come to take potluck like, they won't be particular and I think we had better order the beer from the jerry shop, for our own is ready for hard, and the brewer says, that a four and a half gallon, that sixpence a gallon, won't keep no time, unless it's drunk, 
and so we give some to the man as brought the bushel of coals, and he said it only wanted another hop, and then it won't have hopped into water, and John is a-going to set some trimmers in the ditches to catch some fish, and, perhaps, if your lordship comes, you may catch some too, from your obedient humble servant and housekeeper, Mrs. R.U.M. and mine. 7. My lord, probably your cellars will be full of choke damp when the door is opened, from long disuse and confined air, I had men, accustomed to descend dangerous wells and shafts, who will undertake the job at a moderate price, should you labor under any temporary pecuniary embarrassment in paying me, I shall be happy to take it out in your wine, which I should think had been some years in bottle, your lordship's most humble servant, Richard Rose, dealer in marine stores, graze in lane, blaze of the lazy, I've wandered on the distant shore, I brave the dangers of the deep, I very often passed the nor at Greenwich climbed the well-known steep, I've sometimes dined at Conduit House, I've taken at Chalk Farm my tea, I've at the Eagle talked with Rouse but I have not forgotten me, I've stood amid the glittering throng of mountebanks at Greenwich Fair, where I had heard the Chinese gong filling, with brazen voice, the air, I've joined wild revelers at night I've crouched beneath the old oak tree, wet through, and in a pretty plight, but, oh! I've not forgotten me. I've earned, at times, a pound a week. Alas, I'm earning nothing now. Chalk scarcely shames my whitened cheek. Grief has plowed furrows in my brow. I only get one meal a day. And that one meal, oh, God, my tea, I'm wasting silently away. But I have not forgotten me. My days are drawing to their end I've now. Alas, no end in view. I never had a real friend. I wear a worn-out black surtout. My heart is darkened o'er with woe. My trousers whitened at the knee. My boot forgets to hide my toe but I have not forgotten me. Maternal solicitude. The business habits of Her Gracious Majesty have long been the theme of admiration with her loving subjects. A further proof of her attention to general affairs, and consideration for the accidents of the future, has occurred lately. The lodge at Frogmer, which was, during the lifetime of Queen Charlotte, an out-of-town nursery for little highnesses has been constructed by command of the Queen into a royal Acheleobion for a similar purpose, wit without money, or, how to live upon nothing, by the A.M.P.Y.R.E. Horseleach, Esquire Chapter I.I., a clever fellow, that Horseleach, when vampire is once drawn out, what a great creature it is, these, and similar ecstatic eulogiums, have I frequently heard murmured forth from muzzy mouths into tinged and tingling ears, as I have been leaving a company of choice spirits, there never was a greater mistake. Horseleach, to be candid, far from being a clever fellow, is one of the most barren rascals on record. Vampire, whether drawn out or held in is a poor creature, not a great creature opaque, not luminous in a word, by nature, a very dull dog indeed, but you see the necessity of appearing otherwise. Hunger may be said to be a moral mechai, which invents a strop upon which the blindest wits are sharpened to admiration. Believe me, my industry and perseverance which necessity will inevitably superinduce the most dreary dullard that ever carried timber between his shoulders in the shape of a head, may speedily convert himself into a seeming shared in a substitute Ionel Sidney Smith II Sam Rogers, without the drawback of having written Jack Lyme. Take it for granted that no professed diner out ever possessed a particle of native wit. His stock in trade, like that of Field Lane Chapman, is all plunder, not a joke issues from his mouth but has shaken sides long since quiescent. Whoso would be a diner out must do likewise. 
the real diner obviously whose card rack or mantelpiece I was going to say groans, but laughingly rejoices in respectful well-worded invitations to a luxuriously appointed tables. I count not him, hapless wretch, as one who, singling out, a friend, drops in just at pudding time, and Raven's horrible remnants of last Tuesday's joint, cognizant of curses in the throat of his host, and of intensest sable on the brows of his hostess, no struggle there, on the part of the children, to share the good man's knee, but protruded eyes, round as spectacles, and almost as large, fixed alternately upon his flushed face and that absorbing epigastrine which is making their miserable flesh paw to wane most wretchedly. To be jocose is not the sole requisite of him who would fain be a universal diner out, lively with the light airy with the sparkling brilliant with the blithe. He must also be grave with the serious heavy with the profound solemn with the stupid. He must be able to snivel with the sentimental to condole with the afflicted to prove with the practical to be a theorist with the speculative. To be jocose is his most valuable acquisition, as there is a tradition that birds may be caught by sprinkling salt upon their tails. So the best and the most numerous dinners are secured by a judicious management of an exalt. I fear me that the works of Josephus, and of his imitators of that Joseph and his brethren, I mean, whom a friend of mine calls, the miller and his men, I fear me, I say, that these are well nigh exhausted, yet I have known very ancient jokes turned with advantage so as to look almost equal to new, but this requires long practice, ere the final skill be attained, if Erge, Slee, Witcherly, and Vanbrugh are very little read, and were pretty fellows in their day, I think they may be safely consulted, and rendered available, but, have a care, be sure you mingle some of your own dullness with their brighter matter, or you will overshoot the mark, you will be too witty if they will error, true wits eat no dinners, save of their own providing, and, depend upon it, it is not their wit that will nowadays get them their dinner. True wits are feared, not fed. When you tell an anecdote, never ascribe it to a man well known. The time is gone by for dwelling upon, Dean Swift said, Quinn, the actor, remarked, the facetious foot was once, that reminds me of what Sheridan, hog, hog, Sidney Smith was dining the other day with, and the like. Your hog, hog, especially should it precede the name of Sam Rogers would inevitably cost you a hecatomb of dinners. It would be changed into oh, oh, too surely, and too soon, Verbum said. I would have you be careful to sort your pleasantries. Your soup jokes never hazard that one about Marshall Turenne. It is really too ancient. Your fish, your flesh, your foul jests, your side shakers for the side dishes, your puns for the pastry, your after-dinner excruciators. Sometimes, from negligence but be not negligent or ill luck, which is unavoidable, and attends the best directed efforts. You sit down to table with your stock ill-arranged or incomplete, or of an inferior quality. Your object is to make men laugh. It must be done. I have known a pathetic passage, quoted timely and with a happy emphasis from a popular novel say, Alice, or the mysteries, I have known it. I say, do more execution upon the congregated amount of midriff, than the best joke of the evening. There is one passage in that, thrilling, performance, where Alice, Overjoyed that her lover is restored to her, is represented as frisking about him like a dog around his long absent proprietor, which, whenever I have taken it in hand, has been rewarded with the most vociferous and gleesome laughter, and this reminds me that I should say a word about laughers, I know not whether I'd be prudent to come to terms with any man, however stentorian his lungs, or flexible his facial organs, with a view to engage him as a cashinottery machine. 
a confederate may become a traitor a rival he is pretty certain of becoming. Besides, strive as you may, you can never secure an altogether unexceptionable individual one who will go the whole hyena, and be at the same time the entire jackal. If he once start, lion, on his own account, furnished with your original roar, with which you yourself have supplied him, goodbye to your supremacy, farewell, my trim-built wary, he is in the same boat only to capsize you, and the first lion thinks the last of war, and rightly so thinks, no, the best and safest plan is to work out your own ends, independent of aid which at best is for him, and is likely to be formidable. I may perhaps resume this subject more at large at a future time. My space at present is limited, but I feel I have hardly as yet entered upon the subject. Lambiente eighty islands, ye banks and praise o Buckingham. How can ye bloom see fresh and fair, when I am on my latest legs, and may not bask among ye mere, and you, sweet maids of honor, come, come, darlings, let us jointly mourn, for your old flame must now depart, depart, oh! never to return, oft have I roamed o'er Buckingham, from room to room, from height to height, it was such pleasant exercise, and gave me such an appetite, yes, when the dinner hour arrived, for me they never had to await, I was the first to take my chair, and spread my ample napkin straight, and if they did not quickly come, after the dinner bell had knolled, I just ran out my private stairs, to say the things were getting cold, but now, farewell. Ye pantry steams, the sweets of premiership to me, ye gravies, relishes, and creams, mumsy and port, and burgundy, full well I mind the days gone by, twas naught but sleep, and wake, and dine, then John and Pell sang all oh their luck, and fondly see sang I all oh mine, but now, how sad the scene, and changed, Johnny and Pell are glad name ere, oh, banks and praise o' oh Buckingham. How can you bloom see fresh and fair, Chelsea, from our own correspondent? This delightful watering place is filling rapidly. The steamboats bring down hundreds every day, and in the evening take them all back again. Mr. Jones has engaged a lodging for the week, and other families are spoken of. A ball is also talked about, but it is not yet settled who is to give it, nor where it is to be given. The promenading along the wooden pier is very general at the leaving of the packets and on their arrival a great number of persons pass over it. There are whispers of a band being engaged for the season, but, as there will not be room on the pier for more than one musician, it has been suggested to negotiate with the talent artist who plays the drum with his knee, the cymbals with his elbow, the triangle with his shoulder, the bells with his head, and the pan's pipes with his mouth thus uniting the powers of a full orchestra with the compactness of an individual. An immense number of Margate slippers and donkeys have been imported within the last few days, and there is every probability of this pretty little peninsula becoming a formidable rival to the old established watering places. The drama, foreign affairs, O.R., the court of Queen Anne, perhaps it was the fashion at the court of Queen Anne, for young gentlemen who had attained the age of sixteen to marry and be given in marriage, at all events. Some conjecture of the sort is necessary to make the plot of the piece we are noticing somewhat probable that being the precise circumstance upon which it hinges, the Count Street Louis, a youthful attaché of the French embassy, becomes attached, by a marriage contract, to a Lady Belle, a maid of honor to Queen Anne, the husband at sixteen, of a wife quite nineteen, would, according to the natural course of things, be very considerably henpecked, and St. Louis, foreseeing this, determines to begin. Well, 
he insists upon having, Article 5, of the marriage contract cancelled, for, by this stipulation, he is to be separated from his wife. On the evening of the ceremony which fast approaches, for five years, he storms, swears, and is laughed at, somebody sends him a wedding present of sugar plums everybody calls him a boy, and makes merry at his expense the wife treats him with contempt, and plays the scornful, the hobbledehoy husband, fired with indignation, determines to prove himself a man, at the court of Queen and this seems to have been an easy matter. St. Louis writes love letters to several maids of honor and to a citizen's wife, finishing the first act by invading the private apartments of the maiden ladies belonging to the court of the chaste queen and, the second act discovers him confined to his apartments by order of the queen, having amused himself, while the intrigues begun by the love letters are hatching, by running into debt, and being surrounded by duns, the intrigues are not long in coming to a head, for two ladies visit him separately in secret and allow themselves to be hit in those never-failing adjuncts to a piece of dramatic intrigue a couple of closets, which are used exactly in the same manner in foreign affairs, as in all the farces within the memory of man example gr. The hero is alone, one lady enters cautiously, a tender interchange of sentiment ensues a noise is heard, and the lady screams, ah, that closet, into which exit lady, then enter lady number two, a second interchange of tender things another noise behind, no escape, none, and yet, happy thought, that closet, exit lady number two, into closet number two, this is exactly as it happens in foreign affairs, the second noise is made by the husband of one of the concealed ladies, and the lover of the other, here, out of the old closet materials, the dramatist has worked up one of the best situations to use an actor's word we ever remember to have witnessed, it cannot be described, but it is really worth all the money to go and see it, let our readers do so. The affairs end by the boy fighting a couple of duels with the injured men, and thus, crowning the proof of his manhood, gets his wife to tolerate to love him. The piece was, as it deserved to be, highly successful. It was admirably acted by Mr. Webster as one of the injured lovers Mr. Strickland and Mrs. Sterling, as a vulgar citizen and sightiseness by Miss P. Horton as Lady Bell and even by a Mr. Clark, who played a very small part that of a barber with great skill. Lastly, Mabel, Celeste, as the hero, acquitted herself to admiration. We suppose the farce is called foreign affairs out of compliment to this lady, who was the only foreign affair we could discover in the whole piece, if we accept that it is translated from the French, which island strictly, an affair of the authors, Mary Clifford. If, dear readers, you have a taste for refined morality and delicate sentiment, for chaste acting and spirited dialogue, for scenery painted on the spot, but like nothing in nature except canvas and color go to the Victoria and see Mary Clifford, it may, perhaps, startle you to learn that the incidents are faithfully copied from the Newgate calendar, and that the subject is Mother Brown Reed of Apprentice Killing Notoriety, but be not alarmed, there is nothing horrible or revolting in the drama it is nearly laughable, Mary Clifford, or the foundling apprentice girl, is very appropriately introduced to the auditor, first outside the gates of that noble charity school, taking leave of some of her accidental companions, here sympathy is first awakened, Mary is just going out to place, and instead of saying goodbye, which we have been led to believe is the usual form of farewell amongst charity girls, she sings a song with such heart-rending expression, that everybody cries except the musicians and the audience, to assist in this lacrimose operation, 
The girls on the stage are supplied with clean white aprons time out mind a charity girl's pocket handkerchief. In the next scene we are introduced to Mr. and Mrs. Brownrigg's domestic arrangements, and are made acquainted with their private characters a fine stroke of policy on the part of the author, for one naturally pities a poor girl who can sing so nicely, and can get the corners of so many white aprons wetted on leaving her last place, when one sees into whose hands she is going to fall. The fact island the whole family are people of taste peculiar, to be sure, and not refined. Mrs. B has a taste for starving apprentices her son, Mr. Joel and B for seducing them and Mr. B longs only for a quiet life, a pot of porter, and a pipe. Into the bosom of this amiable family Mary Clifford enters, and we tremble for her virtue and her meals. Not, alas, in vain, for Mr. John is not slow in commencing his gallantries which are exceedingly offensive to Mary, seeing that she has already formed a liaison with a schoolfellow, one William Clipson, who happily resides at the very next door with a baker. During the struggles that ensue she calls upon her heart's master, the journeyman baker, but there is another and more terrible invocation. In classic plays they invoke the gods in Catholic high ones, the saints, the stage Arab appeals to Ella, the light comedian swears, by the Lord Harry, but Mary Clifford adds a new and impressive invocative to the list. When young Brownreed attempts to kiss, or his mother to flog her, she casts her eyes upward, kneels, and placing her hands together in an attitude of prayer, solemnly calls upon the governors of the foundling hospital. Nothing can exceed the terrific effect this seems to produce upon her persecutors. They release her instantly they slink back abashed and trembling they hide their diminished heads, and leave their victim a clear stage for a soliloquy or a song. We really must stop here, to point out to dramatic authors the importance of this novel form of conjuration. When the history of Fondleroy comes to be dramatized, the lover will, of course, be a banker's clerk, in the depths of distress and despair into which he will have to be plunged. A prayer-like appeal to the governor and company of the Bank of England, will most assuredly, draw tears from the most insensible audience, the old exclamations of, gracious powers, great heavens, my heaven, I swear, and see, and see, may now be abandoned, and, after, Mary Clifford, Bob Aker's tasteful system of swearing may not only be safely introduced into the tragic drama, but considerably augmented, but to a return, dreading lest Miss Mary should really, go and tell, the illustrious governors, she is kept a close prisoner, and finishes the first act by a conspiracy with a fellow apprentice, and an attempt to escape. Mr. Brownreed, we are informed, carried on business at number 12, Fetter Lane, in the oil, paint, pickles, vinegar, plumbing, glazing, and pepper line, and, in the next act, a correct view is exhibited of the exterior of his shop, painted, we are told, from the most indisputable authorities of the time, here, in Fetter, Lane. The romance of the tale begins, a lady enters, who, being of a communicative disposition, begins, and asked, and questioned, to tell the audience a story how that she married in early life that her husband was pressed to see a day or two after the wedding that she in due time became a mother, and affectionate creature, left the dear little pledge at the door of the foundling hospital, that was sixteen years ago, since then fortune has smiled, and she wants her baby back again, but on going to the hospital says, that they informed her that her daughter has been just put apprentice in the very house before which she tells the story part of it as great a fib as ever was told, for children once inside the walls of that noble charity, never know who left them there, 
and any attempt to find each other out, by parent or child, is punished with the instant withdrawal of the omnipotent protection of the awful, governors, this lady, who bears all the romance of the peace upon her own shoulders, expects to meet her long-lost husband at the ship, in Wathing, and instead of seeking her daughter, repairs thither, having done all the offer required, by emptying her budget of fibs, the next scene is harrowing in the extreme, the bills describe it as Mrs. Brownrigg's wash house, kitchen, and skylight, the skylight forming a most impressive object, poor Mary Clifford is chained to the floor, her face begrimed, her dress in rags, and herself exceedingly hungry, here the heroine describes the weakness of her body with energy and stentorian eloquence, but is interrupted by Mr. Clipson, whose face appears framed and glazed in the broken skylight, a pathetic dialogue ensues, and the lover swears he will rescue his mistress, or perish in the attempt, calling upon Mr. Owen, the parish overseer, to make known her sufferings, the ship, in Wapping, is next shown, and Toby Bensling, alias Richard Clifford, enters to inform his hearers that he is the missing father of the injured foundling, and has that moment stepped ashore, after a short voyage, lasting sixteen years, he is on his way to the Admiralty, to receive some pay the more particularly, we imagine, as they always pay sailors at Somerset House and then to look after his wife but she saves him the trouble by entering with Mr. William Clipson, the usual, whom do I see, can it be, after so long an absence, and see, and see, having been duly uttered and begged to, they all go to see after Mary, find her in a cupboard in Mrs. B. Single quote S. back parlor, and the act drop falls, we must confess we approach a description of the third act with diffidence, such intense pathos, we feel, demands words of more somber sound ink of a darker hue, than we can command, the third scene island in particular, too extravagantly touching for an ordinary nurse to a witness, Mary Clifford is in bed French bedstead especially selected, perhaps, because such things were not thought of in the days of Mother Brownrigg stands exactly in the middle of the stage a chest of drawers is placed behind, and a table on each side, to balance the picture, the lover leans over the head, the mother sits at the foot, the father stands at the side, Mary Clifford is insane, with lucid intervals, and island moreover, dying, the consequence island she has all the talk to herself, which consists of a discourse concerning the great, governors, her cruel mistress, and her naughty young master, interlarded with insane ejaculations, always considered stage property, such as, ah, she comes, nay, strike me not I am guiltless, again, villain, what do you take me for, and hand me, and all that, then the dying part comes, and she sees an angel in the flies, and informs it that she is coming soon here it is usual for a lady to be removed from the gallery in strong hysterics, and keeps her a word by letting her arm fall upon the bedclothes and shutting her eyes, whereupon somebody says that she is dead, and the prompter whistles for the scene to be changed, in the last scene, criminal justice takes its course, Mrs. Brownreed, having been sentenced to the gallows, is seen in the condemned cell, her son by her side, and the fatal card in the background, having been brought up genteelly, she declines the mode of conveyance provided for her journey to Tyburn with the utmost volubility, being about to be hanged merely does not seem to affect her so poignantly as the disgraceful drag she is doomed to take her last journey in, she swoons at the idea, and the curtain falls to end her wicked career, and the sufferings of an innocent audience, punch, oh are the London C H A R I V A R I. Volume 1, 
for the week ending August 28, 1841, the heir of APPLEBIDE. Chapter I introduces the reader to the APPLEBIDE family and to Agamemnon CLLUNPSIO and APPLEBIDE in particular. The following is extracted from the Parliamentary Guide for 18, APPLEBIDE. Isaac Puddingbury, born March 25, 1780, descended from his grandfather, and has issue and upon reference to a monument in Puddingbury Church, representing the first Mrs. Applebite who was a housemaid industriously scrubbing a large tea urn, whilst another figure supposed to be the second Mrs. Applebite is plodding reproachfully to a little fat cherub who is blowing himself into a fit of apoplexy from some unassignable cause or another I say upon reference to this monument, upon which is blazoned forth all the stock virtues of those who employ stonemasons. I find, that in July, 18, the said Isaac was gathered onto Abraham's bosom, leaving behind him a seat in the House of Commons a relic the issue aforesaid, and L50.000 in the three percents. The widow Applebite had so arranged matters with her husband, that two-thirds of the above sum were left wholly and solely to her, as some sort of consolation under her bereavement of the best of husbands and the kindest of fathers. Vidi Monument, old Isaac must have been a treasure, for his wife either missed him so much or felt so desirous to learn if there was another man in the world like him, that, as soon as the monument was completed and placed in Puddingbury Chancel, she married a young officer in a dashing dragoon regiment, and started to the continent to spend the honeymoon, leaving her son Agamemnon CLLUNPSIO and APPLEBIDE the apoplectic cherub and the issue alluded to in the parliamentary guide, to the care of himself. ACA was the pattern of what a young man ought to be. He had 16.000 and on pounds in the three percents. Hair that curled naturally. Stood five feet nine inches without his shoes. Always gave a shilling to a waiter. Lived in a terrace. Never stopped out all night but once. And paid regularly every Monday morning. Agamemnon Columpsy on Applebite was a happy bachelor. The women were delighted to see him. And the men to dine with him. To the one he gave bouquets. To the other. Cigars. In short. Everybody considered ACA as A1, and ACA considered that A1 was his proper mark. It is somewhat singular, but no man knows when he is really happy, he may fancy that he wants for nothing, and may even persuade himself that addition or subtraction would be certain to interfere with the perfectitude of his enjoyment. He deceives himself. If he wishes to assure himself of the exact state of his feelings, let him ask his friends, they are disinterested parties and will find out some annoyance that has escaped his notice. It was thus with Agamemnon Columpsy on Applebite. He had made up his mind that he wanted for nothing, when it was suddenly found out by his friends that he was in a state of felicitous destitution. It was discovered simultaneously, by five mamas and eighteen daughters, that Agamemnon Columpsy on Applebite must want a wife, and that his sixteen thousand and on pounds must be a